For those of you who are novel readers, if you found a really good one, you get to the end, and if you've enjoyed turning the pages and seeing what's going to happen and the mood that it creates for you, you might be sad at the end, even though you're ready to go on to something else. For the last three months or so, we have, as it were, been in a novel together, a chapter in the book of Hebrews, one of the more famous chapters in the New Testament, Hebrews 11. And today is our final day in that book. I feel a certain sadness leaving it in that, uh, for me, studying these things has been wonderful and eye-opening and helpful. But today we're going to leave these folks, but not before we get a final, really good glance at what God wants to teach us through them. This chapter so far, has been about faith that has largely been rewarded in this life. Enoch believed in God, and he never saw death. God just took him up. Noah believed in God, and he and his whole family was rescued from the flood. Abraham and Sarah believed in God, and God gave them a child way past age when you can normally have a child. Moses believed in his God and led some two million fellow Israelites out of the clutches of Pharaoh into freedom. Jericho fell because the Israelites believed in God. And today we come to the climax of what God says after describing that through faith people conquered kingdoms, shut the mouths of lions, and escaped the edge of the sword. Hebrews chapter 11 Verse 35. Women received back their dead, raised to life again. But others were tortured and refused to be released so that they might gain a better resurrection. Some faced jeers and flogging, while still others were chained and put in prison. They were stoned. They were sawed in two. They were put to death by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. These were all commended for their faith Yet none of them received what had been promised. God had planned something better for us, so that only together with us would they be made perfect. Boy, after a long chapter of so many things in this very life that God did for so many people, to end a chapter like this is rather striking. All these people that did not see their faith rewarded in this life. The great teaching of this chapter then has always been that true faith may seem unrewarded in this life. Many people trip over Christianity exactly because of this. I doubt there's a Christian among us who has been a Christian very long who has not heard someone or another say something like this. You know, I tried religion. But I got nowhere. Or maybe even more poignantly, I had a son 
or a daughter who was sick. And I started going to church and I prayed my heart out. And that child died anyway. And that person has now become bitter and church or God or the Bible or religion is repulsive to them because of it. Their faith, they feel like, was totally unrewarded. And yet, the fact that God does not always in this life reward our faith is no bait and switch. The Bible from Genesis to Revelation makes that quite clear. And the most eloquent place, in my opinion, in the whole Bible that makes it clear is this final passage of Hebrews 11 that we're reading today. Hebrews 11 talks about glorious answers to prayer and to faith and about puzzling postponement of God's answers to those prayers and to that faith. In summary, about the people we're reading now, verse 37 says that they were mistreated and they were afflicted, which is probably more literally, they were pressed, they were squeezed. Now, the writer of Hebrews, in writing about all these people from the centuries before Christ came, could have talked about how, uh, despite their faith, their sicknesses went unhealed, or accidents uh, went unavoided, or some of them had businesses that failed, or some of them had goals that were unreached. Perhaps he could have talked about relationships that were unsatisfying or disappointing. But here, his focus is on heaven allowing others who were hostile to the true God to bring grief to the people who believed in him and trusted in him. And so this chapter here, this final paragraph, is a litany of the sufferings of God's people who never in this life saw him reward them for the way they trusted in him. The passage describes it in numerous ways. We might break it down like this. One of the first ways that this chapter talks about God's people suffering in an unrewarded manner is when he describes many of them as being confined. He says that in verse 36 where he talks about them being in chains and imprisonment. Prison is a place where everyday joys are gone. You replace the delights of this world with stench and with ugliness. In prison, you're away from the people you love and you are stiflingly close to people you in no way want to be near. The prophet Micaiah might have been in the writer's mind from 1 Kings chapter 22. You may recall the account. In Israel, a very wicked king named Ahab had arisen and he wanted to go to war with the neighboring country of the Syrians. He called 400 prophets to come in to his throne room and tell him, would Jehovah give me victory if I go to this conflict? All of them said to a man, yes, yes, go, Jehovah will reward you with these iron um, horns that I've made like an ox's horns. You will goad your enemies and crush them and spear them through. But finally, they called in the one prophet who always spoke the truth, a man named Micaiah. As he was coming to the throne room, the king, the messenger said, listen, 400 guys have told the king exactly what he wants to hear. You better do the same. And Micaiah came before the king and he said, oh, yes, I'll go. Yeah, go, go. Absolutely go. God will go with you. Micaiah says, how many times do I have to tell you to tell me only the truth? Micaiah looked that king in the eye and said, I saw the Lord 
sitting on his throne. And all the heavenly council was around him. And he said to them, Who will go and lure King Ahab to his death? And finally, one spirit came and said, I will be a lying spirit in the mouth of his prophets. And Jehovah said, Go, you will succeed. And Micaiah said, In my vision I saw that all Israel was scattered like sheep without a shepherd. Can you think of the courage it took to speak in that setting to that man with that sort of power? Ahab said, Put this man in prison, give him bread and water, and do not let him out until I return safely. As you read the biblical account, Ahab never returned safely. He died in battle and bled to death in his chariot. Now his wicked son became king and got the crown. What do you think that son is going to do with that prophet? He is going to leave him right in jail. That's what you get if you are the prophet Micaiah, exercising faith in Jehovah God. Some years ago, my wife Verna and I were in the country of Qatar, and we learned there from people who were Christians of an American couple who had adopted a child, but that child died while they were there. Now, in Islamic culture, um, adoption is a non-existent thing. It's just not part of what they do. And so they're suspicious of adoptees in many of these countries. And so this man and this woman was arrested. And though the couple had done everything medically they could possibly do and had people all over the world praying for the life of this child, this child died, and now they were put in prison. Verna went to see the woman. I went to see the man. I will never forget that. These were very strong Christians. They were people who believed and loved and knew the true God. They were spending their lives in a country of a different religion in order to, at risk, share that gospel. Despite the fact of their deep faith, as I talked to them, and Verna said the same thing, as he talked, she talked to the wife through the plexiglass, these people were low, they were sobered, they were feeling it, they lived with a constant ache, and they were in there for a long, long time until the U.S. government finally was able to negotiate their release. Being confined is one of the ways in which people who exercised faith in the true God never saw that faith answered in this life. The second way our passage talks about it is people who knew the loss of their home or of comfort of any kind. We read about that, for instance, in verse 37, where it says that some of these Old Testament believers were destitute. That is, they were needy. It says that they went about in the skins of sheep and goats. That word went about doesn't mean when they were walking to work every day, they had to dress like that. It means that they had to wander about. They were not able to stay in their own home. They were always on the move. They were always refugees. They were always looking over their shoulders. They were trying to see behind their backs who's following me, who is hunting me. They had to move because they lacked food and had to go wherever they could find it. They had to move because they were hunted and trying to stay one step ahead of the law. We read that they went about in the skins of sheep and goats. I never knew until this week that the word about sheepskins is not about sheepskins that are dressed 
It is sheepskins that are just raw and undressed. That is, you kill the sheep, you take the skin off, you let it dry out for a day or two, and then you put it on pretty much just as it is. Why were these people dressed like this? It's because they had no money for clothes, because they couldn't hold a job and earn a living because of the persecution they experienced. And they could not risk going into towns and buying cloth from merchants. They had to find clothing wherever they could out in the wilderness. We read that these people were, had to live in caves and mountains and holes in the ground. A cave is not a cozy place. It's damp, it's dim, it's miserable, and you have a rock floor for a bed. We read in 1 Corinthians 18, 1 Kings 18, and maybe that's what the writer of Hebrews was talking about. One example, I'm sure he had many in mind. During the reign of this same king Ahab that we talked about before, his wife Jezebel, who was an abject Baal worshiper, well, let me just read what the Bible says about her. While Queen Jezebel was killing off the Lord's prophet, a man named Obadiah, who was the manager of King Ahab's palace. You imagine the tension to do that. The man who was the manager of King Ahab's palace had taken a hundred prophets of Jehovah and had hidden them in two caves, 50 in each, and had supplied them with food and water. This was over the period of a famine that lasted three years. That was the minimum amount of time that these people were in this cave. The Bible says here that these people were destitute, afflicted, and mistreated. And yet they never saw their faith rewarded in this life. Worse, the passage talks here about people who believed, but who experienced physical pain. We read in verse 35, women received back their dead, raised to life again, but others were tortured. I was not aware until the reading I was able to do this week of the background of this word, nor of some of the background probably in the mind of the writer when he wrote. The word here is a very specific word for the use of a certain instrument of torture. The things done on it are probably not appropriate to repeat in public. We read in the next verse that one example of the physical pain that these people experienced was flogging. When I was a kid, I needed a lot of discipline. I didn't think so at the time, but I look back and my dad was right on. And when I was really bad, I got the belt. Now, when dad took off his belt, it was a terror of a thing. It was always for my good and it was always with restraint. But for these folks, when they were flogged on their backs and the back of their legs and elsewhere, it was not for their good. It was for their misery. It was merely to vent the fury of their persecutors and their wounds were left untreated and that in the age before antiseptics anyway. And yet the flogging that these people were subject to I think, was probably the least of the pains that the writer is envisioning here. He's envisioning, it seems, from some of the language and specific phrases, that what a lot of people suffered in the years between the Old Testament and the New Testament, four centuries worth of people when the Greek nation had overcome them and ruled them 
And the horrors they were put through under them, as I say, were unspeakable and inappropriate to mention. But beyond just pain that perhaps many of them lived through, the writer here goes on to talk about pain that ended in death, an excruciatingly painful trip to the grave. We read, for instance, that they were put to death by the sword. Literally, they were murdered with the sword. Today, the Eighth Amendment of the U.S. Constitution um, arbitrates the sorts of things that are allowed when capital punishment is applied to a prisoner. Cruel and unusual punishments are forbidden, and there are a great many legal debates about what constitutes a humane execution. He is writing about places where there was no humanity in the execution. The executions that these people experienced were often a testimony to human creativity to maximize pain. They were stoned, we read. It's a single word. It's so easy to read over. But have you ever been hit really hard? Have you, have you walked in the dark and knocked your head hard against some object? Have you ever had something thrown at you or dropped accidentally as you were maybe on a job and a hammer hit you on the head? The real pain that you have. Now, can you imagine that where you're put down into a pit where you were confined and now people pick up jagged rocks and they keep going until you're dead? It is a slow, awful way to die. The Bible goes on to say, and I am almost surprised it's in the Bible. It's so graphic, but since God felt free to write it, I feel free to read it. It says they were sawn in two. Just picture that. Picture the slowness of that. Picture the delight of the people doing that. You have to be a twisted person to order it done. You have to be a twisted person to carry it out. And doubtless they carried it out in the slowest way possible. All this was despite the faith of the people who were killed and tortured and treated in these ways. And finally, to add the crowning touch to all that these Old Testament people suffered, never seeing their faith rewarded, the writer goes out of his way to speak about the emotional pain that accompanied what these people went through. When a child falls down, scrapes his face or his knees, a child instinctively cries for mom, and at least the comfort of being swooped up and patted and there, there, and something like that in a Band-Aid, even when you don't need it, it's a comfort. Or if a person is a little older and you're terribly disappointed in love, <clears throat> a person might get on the phone and call a friend and they go out to eat together. And he or she will tell a story of unrequited love or a terrible breakup or something along this nature. And to have a friend who listens and gives you a hug is a wonderful thing. But to experience mocking and at the same time, be jeered for the suffering you're experiencing. That's what this writer is talking <clears throat> about. As you know, today, with social media, there is just a steady array of teenagers who commit suicide because of the jeering they receive on social media. This is what this person is talking about. Only in those days, it was always in person and up front. Over the centuries, hangings, in many places, in some places still today, were public affairs. The reason they were public affairs is to add to the misery of the person being hanged to death so that people would smile and laugh, elbow each other, guffaw, and 
express hard things to the person swinging from a rope. It's to increase the punishment by way of the mocking. We read in verse 36 that some experienced jeers and flogging. That is, the salt in the wounds as they were already bleeding. And this was especially true when they were innocent. You may recall reading about the prophet Jeremiah in chapter 20 of his book, where it says that the temple officer, the temple officer, ordered that Jeremiah be publicly flogged. And then after he was flogged, put in the stocks, arms like this, legs like this, extremely uncomfortable position for long periods of time in a very public place so that everybody that goes by could see you. Just the other day, I wasn't paying attention. I didn't go through a stop sign, but I turned at a four-way stop at a place where apparently it was someone else's turn. My mind was far away. The person I turned in front of was a state trooper. He pulled me over. So, as we're standing there, don't stand, get back in your car. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. And as we're there, lights are flashing. People are passing. People are smiling. Elbows are are ribbing. It's a glorious affair. What is it about it? It just makes that experience so miserable. Now, you have been publicly flogged. You are publicly in the stocks. Everybody walks by and they make fun of you because you have preached sermons that they are going to get it from God. And now you are obviously getting it from God by the temple authorities. That's what it's about. So Jeremiah wrote in chapter 20, Oh, Jehovah, I am ridiculed all day long. Everyone mocks me. The word of the Lord has brought me insult. And derision all day long. Many of the people that this writer had in mind, both recorded in scripture and recorded in extra biblical books that describe what people went through. Many of these people, as they were tortured to death, were jeered. And do you notice the juxtaposition of what faith they exercised during this time? Look at verse 35. It, it doesn't come across either in the, uh, in the New International, but it does come across um, somewhat in the English Standard Version. Let me read it a little more literally. Speaking about um, two women in the Old Testament whom the prophet Elijah and Elisha raised their children from the dead, we read, women received their dead by resurrection. Others were tortured and refused to be released so that they might gain a better resurrection. You get the idea. Here are people who are going through exquisite torture. Their torturers offer them freedom to be raised from the certain death, provided that they deny what they've been teaching about Jehovah God. And by their faith, they refuse to be let off the torture rack. They refuse to let the saw stop. They refuse to make the sword taken to the back room. They refuse to let the flogging dissipate because they know of a resurrection that is to come one day that is better than any resurrection their tormentors can offer them. They exercised their faith and they got nothing, obviously, for it. Totally unrewarded in this life. The Bible says in verse 39, these were all commended for their faith. Where were they commended? Well, many of them were commended in Scripture. We've read about them. 
Many of them were never recorded in scripture, but in God's heart, he commanded them. He approved them. Now, these things we've been talking about, what do they say about you in the 21st century? Reading about these things from afar in a fairly comfortable chair today, and I'm on a fairly comfortable place right now with lovely surroundings and beautiful music and friendly people. What does this say to you, Christian? Some of you are confined. Some of you are so confined you can't be here today. You're watching through that camera right now because you can't get out of bed. You can't get out of your wheelchair. The pain won't let you or an inability to walk won't let you. Or you did come here, but you're so confined in your movements, perhaps you're in a chair. Some of you have lost all comfort, physical pain, emotional pain. You you, you can't sleep at nights. The number of people in this church have told me that you suffer with chronic insomnia, chronic pain, loss of a place you used to live that you loved, but you could not stay there for one reason or another. Loss of a comfort that you cherished. Some of you can't eat like you used to and things you loved before on your plate, you will never have again in this life. Some of you experience, as these people did, physical pain. And for some of you, it is excruciating at times. For others of you, It is relentless and never goes away. I received an email from a person not terribly long ago who said she's one of a group of women who they call each other their pain pals. It's only a small group of ladies. I don't know how big, 8, 10, 12, I imagine nothing more than that, of women who know what it is to live with chronic pain. And there's something about being able to get on Zoom or on email and talk to each other to someone else who actually understands what it's like. These are women who are exercising faith, as many of you are exercising faith, and emotional pain. What about those of you in this room with that? One of the great joys and great sorrows of working in a church, Al Kimball experiences this probably more than any of us, Matt Carter does. I do. Kathy Eberly, our office staff, Dick Oswald. We hear, we learn about, we see, and we listen to people suffering at a far greater rate than we ever did before we worked in a church. And to hear about the tsunami of emotional pain that people that we know and love are dealing with, at times it just, it takes your breath away And you're heavy as you drive out of here because you see what people are going through. Here's what God says to you who are believing in these times. Hebrews 10. Remember those earlier days after you had received the light. Sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution. At other times you stood side by side with people who were so treated. You sympathized with those in prison You joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property because you knew that you yourselves had better and lasting possessions. So do not throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. That's what he says to you. uh, Another point that this passage makes that is moving to me 
is that the way that God commends, that is that he approves his people who have faith in this passage is by contrasting them with the people of this world. He writes of whom he says, verse 38, of them, the world was not worthy. By the world, of course, he means the people of this world who do not believe in the one true God in a saving way. Now think of this statement. This is one of the deeper things that struck me in this passage. The world was not worthy of these people. Does that ever raise an eyebrow to you when you read that? Christians are used to saying, rightly so, we are not worthy people. Do you remember what Jesus said in Luke 17, 10 to his disciples? He said, when you have done everything you were told to do, you should say, we are unworthy disciples. We've only done our duty. So how is it that the Bible says the world is unworthy of these people? One of the professors that for many years was the favorite of just about everyone who went through Westminster Seminary was Richard Gaffin, who once said, the greater part of wisdom is the ability to know the relationship between complementary truths. Here are the complementary truths about Christians being worthy or not. What God condemns of us, what God would despise of us and not receive of us, ways in which we would be unworthy is when we're talking about human merit. If we're thinking that I can earn salvation, if I'm thinking that by the sincerity of my prayers, that is why I am heard, if I'm thinking that God owes me anything, all this is a counterfeit to true salvation. All this is a hindrance to eternal life. What God requires of a person to have his prayer answered is to acknowledge that he's totally unworthy of anything. Luke 18, to some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told them this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself. God, I thank you that I am not like other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector over here. I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of all that I earn. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, we read. But he beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you, Jesus said, that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but everyone who humbles himself will be exalted. Jesus is talking about the notion that we have merit and are worthy in that sense. And he's talking about the pride of sanctification, that I'm a self-made man as a Christian. I've overcome this or that vice. Isn't that wonderful? Or a woman who thinks that she has personally achieved a certain status in her salvation. No, no. A summary of Jesus' words is this. Just as servants don't place their masters in their debt when they serve, So with us and God, no matter how much we do, God is against human merit. He's against we're saying we're worthy. He's against our saying we've climbed the mountain. God should be impressed. I can do this without help from anyone. God condemns this. But what our passage 
says so wonderfully is this. God loves when we live in a way that is appropriate to the mercy we have received. When we live in a way that is fitting for forgiven people. That is suitable for heaven-bound sinners. When we live in a way that someone would say, oh, that's how someone ought to live. That's what we were created to be like. This is what he's talking about. And this is what these people strove for in the Old Testament. So he might be thinking of a person in the New Testament, like Epaphroditus that we read about in Philippians, who was traveling on missionary work. He was risking his life as he did so. He got sick and he almost died. And the Apostle Paul wrote to his home church and said, honor men like him. The idea is they're worthy of honor. And so in the New Testament, we read verses like this from Philippians. Christians, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. From Ephesians, I urge you to live a life worthy of your calling. From Luke chapter 20, Jesus referring to Christians as those who are considered, listen to this, Christians are those who are considered worthy to take part in the final resurrection. God cherishes the beauty of a faith-filled, love-filled sacrificial life. He says to live like that is to live in a worthy manner. And so Hebrews 11 says, as it were, that the people of this world, they just live for themselves. They exist only to pursue pleasure. They spend all their money on their own affairs. They spend all their attention on their own interests. They hate examples of godliness because the people who are Christ's make them look bad. They treated believers as unworthy to live in the world when actually the world was unworthy to be with those believers. That's exactly what he's saying. On the great day, folks, God is going to divide humanity. He makes very clear into two. He calls them the sheep and the goats, those who are his and those who is not. God will not only separate the people of this world who resist him from himself, He will also separate them from you. Because in the words of Hebrews, they will not be worthy to be with the believers who live faith-filled, love-filled, sacrificial lives. It makes you want to live in such a way that it could be said of you, does it not? The world was not worthy of him or her. And that's not just true for adults. It's true for those of you who are children and quite young. The final thing in this passage that to me is so wonderful has to do with the great plan that God has for people who do not see their faith rewarded in this life. And it's discussed in verse 39 following where it says, these were all commended for their faith. They were praised by God. They were lauded in scripture. They were commended in God's heart. These were all commended for their faith. Yet none of them received what was promised. Why? Because God had planned something better. Better than getting your prayers answered. Better than God meeting you where you are right now, right here. How? 
For who? What's he talking about? These were all commended for their faith. Yet none of them received what was promised. God had planned something better for us. So that only together with us would they be made perfect. This sentence is so deep, it is more than I can grasp. But just to attempt to give it a start. Verse 40, some people believe, is speaking about what Old Testament believers experienced after death. The idea is this, on this view, and it's possible. The heroes of Hebrews 11 died before Jesus Christ lived, died, and rose again, did they not? Jesus Christ said to his 12 disciples, many people have longed in the past to see what your eyes see and never saw it. But we today, we can look back and we know the Messiah has come. We know Jesus died for us. And so many scholars believe that what's being talked about here is that heaven in its total fullness was not open to Old Testament believers until Christ's death and resurrection. In other words, they believe that Old Testament believers at death were taken up to God in some way, that what they experienced was certainly better than what they had on earth, but that it wasn't the inner court of heaven, so to speak. It wasn't the full nine yards of what heaven is like right now. As I say, better than on earth, but that when Christ finally died and rose again, they had a definite increase of bliss in the future life. They have the same glory that we immediately have when we die of going to heaven, that God has opened the doors of paradise. And the support for that comes from Hebrews chapter 9, verse 12, where it says that by his cross, Jesus entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. That is that Jesus' blood finally opened the door to the holy of holies. And meanwhile, According to this possible interpretation, believers were in sort of a waiting room in heaven. It's a great place, best waiting room you've ever been in, but not quite inside the full mansion, as it were. And another support for it, which is even more interesting to me, is John 3, verse 13, when Jesus said to Nicodemus during his lifetime, no one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. This then would at least possible credence to the notion that many believe, as I say, is that when it says that Enoch was that God took him up or that Elijah went up to heaven in the whirlwind, just to the skies, that many, they were in a different place, a better place, a different state. They were closer to God, but they were not in the center of his glorious residence. There are many people who believe that this is what it's talking about, where it says that God had planned something better for us, those of us who live in the day of Christ, and we now have access to all this immediately when we die. But I will tell you what everybody of every view who believes the Bible agrees that these two verses are talking about, and this is where it's so wonderful to me. Verse 40 is clearly speaking about what all believers will experience on the great final day of the world. Here's the idea. You know, if you've read the Bible, that the nature of human beings is to have both a soul and a body. It's that combination that is critical to being human. You also know from the teaching of the Bible, particularly 2 Corinthians 5, that when humans die, 
Our souls are with Christ in heaven, but our bodies lie in the ground. And we wait the great judgment day for our bodies to be raised. So salvation that Jesus Christ brings is the salvation of both our souls and our bodies. So consider the lot of the Old Testament saint. They were godly. They suffered. They were faithful. Their sins are pardoned by Christ. You would think surely some of these remarkable people we have read about in the past few months, when they died, they would get the full salvation. And the Bible says, no, no, no. They did not get their perfect bodies. They only got their perfect souls. Why not? The Bible says the reason they did not get their perfect souls and bodies is because you were not there. We were not there. Without us, the passage says, they would not be made perfect. Here's the idea. Picture a family, and they're all hungry, and they come together for dinner, and they're all at the table, and then mom says, hey, put your fork down, wait till your brother gets home from football practice, and then we will eat. Or if everybody's there, but mom's in the kitchen, wait till mom is seated, and then we will eat. So here's what God, as it were, said to the saints of the Old Testament. Wait until the 12 apostles arrive after their death. Old Testament saints, wait until the Christians of the early church arrive after their deaths. Wait until those who lived through the medieval days. Wait until the believers in war-torn Ukraine arrive and heaven after their death. Wait until the Jewish Christians who live in Israel arrive after their death. Wait until the Jewish Palestinians who live in Gaza arrive after their death. God says to Old Testament believers, as it were, wait until the folks at Hopewell Church go through death and come to meet me to get your full salvation. Wait until our people at High Point Baptist arrive. Wait until the people at Twin Valley Bible Chapel arrive. This is staggering. Moses, do you want your new body? You've got a new soul here in heaven. Do you want your new body? Wait for Carol Culp. David, David, do you want your new body? Wait until Carl Brown comes. Abraham and Sarah. Wait until Jerry and Sarah Brady come. Jeremiah, you want your new body? Wait till the teenagers in this church come. Ruth, do you want your new body? Wait till the children who are in this sanctuary today arrive. Rahab, do you want your new body along with your new soul? Wait for all the forgiven sinners. Epic Lane. The idea is this. He's saying the same thing to us today. You who are alive right now and your faith is not answered. And even when you go to heaven, you won't get your body. Wait for those who are in the womb right now till they live their whole lives and die and come to Christ. Wait for those who aren't yet conceived who will be Christ till they arrive. Wait for those who are coming after you are dead and gone. This is what the Apostle Creed is talking about. Many people think, and I agree, where it says, I believe in the Holy Ghost, 
the Holy Catholic, that is universal church, the Holy Ghost, the Holy Universal Church, I believe in the communion of saints. He's talking about the, the oneness between Christians, believers living on this planet in this life. Their oneness with the people who are already in heaven. And it says that God is not going to give anyone it all until we are all together. And then we will sit at the table. And then he will say, now let us eat at this great feast. Here's how it's put in Ephesians chapter 1. It is all because we're joined in Christ, whether we live in Old Testament or New. God let us know his secret purpose. This was what God wanted and what he planned to do through Christ. His goal was that when the right time came, all things in heaven and on earth will be joined together in Christ as the head. This is what is in your future. This is what is in the future of those before you whose prayers seem not to be answered. This is what is happening as today you offer your paltry prayers to God in this service and feel like they bounce down from the ceiling. God has something far more glorious in mind than just answering your prayers right here, right now, in the way that we would like. And he's going to do it all together with every believer who ever lived And the reason is because we are all joined to Jesus Christ. Matt Carter is going to come now and pray for us regarding this wonderful chapter. Would you join me in prayer? Father in heaven, throughout this sanctuary, there are people who in their bodies experience pain that never seems to leave them. There are those suffering from cancers and other diseases that have made their lives an endless litany of doctor's visits and nauseating side effects. There are those who suffered paralysis, those with autism, with mental disabilities or disease, those who have buried their children, their siblings, or lost a parent while they were still children themselves. There are those who've watched all their best friends marry, and they wonder if they'll be single forever. There are those who've suffered infidelity in marriage, divorce, or an abusive spouse. In this sanctuary, there are childless couples who pine for a baby of their own. Some here have experienced financial ruin or poverty. Some have had parents that were abusive. Some have been ridiculed for their faith. Some have lost friendships or employment because of their faith. Father in heaven, we are not the first generation to inhabit this earth. Nor are we a people who've suffered more profoundly than the generations that have gone before us. 
And the writer of Hebrews holds out a promise to us, a promise that we know comes straight from you. All these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance. And they admitted that they were aliens and strangers on the earth. People who say such things show that they're looking for a country of their own. If they'd been thinking of the country they had left, they would have had opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. Later, the writer also says this, These were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised. God had planned something better for us, so that only together with us would they be made perfect. Father, when life is difficult, the evil one would have us believe that it is you who are the liar. He would have us believe that you haven't loved us, that your promises are a deception, that the difficulties in life are evidence that our faith is useless. Oh, Father, the faith that any true saint possesses is only there as a precious gift from the Holy Spirit. The heart to believe that you are good and that your promises are trustworthy. The heart to believe that there is a city prepared for us where every tear and every sorrow will be forgotten. The heart to believe that five minutes there will make our most poignant suffering here seem paltry in the light of it. The heart to hold on to these things is the gift that you and you alone can provide. Father, where our faith is weak, where our faith is imperfect, where we're tempted to distrust your promises because life has become difficult, Please, Lord, cause us to stand. Cause us to believe. Cause us to know that beyond doubt, the things we cannot see are in fact more real, more solid, more to be longed for than anything that we can find here on the earth. And when you have made it so in our hearts, would it be that our faith would speak to the world around us That the God in whom we believe is so much more than sufficient. Your goodness produces joy and contentment in us. Your promise-keeping faithfulness quiets our hearts. And the sacrifice that you made to purchase us causes us to love you. We pray all these things in the beautiful name of our Savior and Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. To close our service this morning, our choir will come now and lead us in a song that celebrates the faith we've been talking about.
I hear the benediction. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you all. Amen.